Hello, everybody. Today's podcast features a super interesting lecture on the scientific fundamentals of the coffee plant by Emma Sage, SCA's science manager. If you like Emma's presentation, check out Sensory Summit, an event organized by the Roasters Guild and the Specialty Coffee Association, coming this January 25th through the 27th. Emma will be part of a group of fantastic speakers at this two-day conference designed to educate, inform, and inspire the specialty coffee sensory professional. Sensory Summit is held at the Sensory Theater inside the Robert Mondavi Institute at the University of California at Davis. To learn more and register, visit sensorysummit.org. That's sensorysummit.org. One more thing before we get started. Rico Symposium, the gathering of some of the most influential thinkers in the coffee industry, is now in its 10th anniversary. Rico returns this April, 18th through the 19th, to Seattle, Washington. The SCA is now accepting submissions to the RICO Fellowship Program, benefiting folks who are new to the coffee industry or, for a variety of reasons, including financial, haven't had the opportunity to attend. The application deadline for the RICO Fellowship is this Friday, January 19th. Help us spread the word on social media with the hashtag RICOSeattle to make RICO Symposium more diverse and truly representative of our community. Learn more about this program at ricosymposium.org forward slash fellowship. That's ricosymposium.org forward slash fellowship. Okay, let's get started with the podcast. Welcome to the SCA Lectures podcast series brought to you by Olam Specialty Coffee, connecting roasters to the finest specialty green coffees. The following is a talk presented live at the 2017 Global Specialty Coffee Expo, the largest annual gathering of specialty coffee professionals. Hi everybody, my name is Emma Sage and I'm the science manager at the SCA. And you're here because you want to hear about plants, which I think is really cool. <laughs> um, housekeeping, there are evaluation forms and I won't cry if you want to give me some criticisms. So feel free to fill them out and to give them to the room host on your way out. And also, if you haven't seen this app thing that we have, it's really awesome. It tells you what's going on all the time, everywhere. And I don't have any handouts for this lecture, but it's very helpful generally for the whole weekend. Alrighty. This is what we're going to be talking about today. Can you guys hear me okay? I can adjust. Okay. So somehow I'm a coffee scientist at the SCA, and I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, my background is in plant biology, hence why I'm really excited that there's so many people in this room. <laughs> um, I studied plant physiology, which means how plants work, like internally. And I specifically, in my academic life, I worked on the effect of different climate change factors on plants, meaning how plants respond to different environments that scientists predict that we'll have in the future, whether that's warmed temperatures or that's elevated carbon dioxide in the air. Um, meanwhile, all this time that I was in the academic world, I was a coffee groupie, self-identified, someone who was just really into coffee. And uh, eventually... I found this advertisement for this job, and it just seemed like 
the, the thing to do at the time. So here I am, about six years later, and I, I learned more about coffee than I ever know. And these days, I call myself a coffee generalist, which means that like anything to do with science and coffee is fair game for me at the SCA. You know, our members have such a big diversity of interests and different bus- business segments. I just try and provide a little bit of something for everybody. All right. I'm going to start with a disclaimer, which I'm... It's one of my favorite things to do <laughs> as a scientist. I like to qualify everything. And one is when we're talking about scientific research, this is kind of this is a great thing for us in coffee. But it just it's worthy to note that, you know, in order for us to get scientific research done on anything, there needs to be systems. There needs to be a certain level of infrastructure. There is an investment that needs to go into research. There needs to be people doing the research, um, which includes, of course, that there has to be a level of stability in whatever place that research is is happening. Um, so it's awesome that we can sit in this room and talk about coffee science. Thank you. So one of the reasons that scientific research and learning about the science of coffee is so important is because there are threats to coffee, right? Our whole business as an industry is essentially threatened by some things that are very sciencey, climate change being one of them, um, diseases and pests that are attacking the coffee plant. That's a big one. Uh, barriers to quality that has to do with sort of agricultural techniques and um, production, low yields, these kind of things, like different inputs that impact the coffee plant. These are big issues that we're facing as an industry. And understanding more about how plants work is actually a really nice way to learn about more of what we can do as an industry to help with these problems. All right. Let me get into some botany. This lecture is going to have a few different topics, so hopefully uh, it won't get too boring. Oh, I definitely want to say, too, that... I know questions are usually at the end, but I'm really chill. So if you guys have a question, just totally um, interrupt. I can see all of you. So just <laughs> interrupt, like raise your hand or something. And I don't mind calling you on you at all, like if I'm in the middle of the presentation. So no worries about that. It's a pretty small room, so I should be able to hear you too. Any questions about the questions? All right. Um, we're just going to jump right in then to some taxonomy. I have a degree in botany, which, by the way, usually means that someone goes out into an area like some mountainside and, and they count all the plants and they collect all the species and then they bring it back to a lab and they identify the species. Um, and that stuff is taxonomy. I didn't actually do that. But <laughs> I, I learned how plants work internally, as I said before. But Taxonomy is like identifying stuff, right? So this is how we classify plants, including coffee. Um, it's the Linnaean classification system that, you know, starts with the kingdom phylum class order. I think we learned that in elementary school, even me. Um, all the way down to genus and species. So family, genus, species are the most important and relevant class bits to any way that a plant is classified, meaning the way that it's kind of organized about who's related to who. And then underneath species, there can be other classifications that are more specific, subspecies or variety. 
So, for coffee, what are we talking about? We're talking about the family Rubiaceae, which includes the genus Coffea. And we all are really into Coffea Arabica. And I'm going to look at more genetic diversity stuff later in this talk, but the Coffea genus actually has over 120 species, of which Arabica is just one species. Oh, you might have noticed there's a little L here, Arabica L. This is like the, the technical way that Arabica is classified. Um, and that L stands for Linnea himself. Um, this guy devised that whole classification system. And amazingly, he actually was one of the first ones to, or he was the one that described coffee to begin with. You can see the highlighted portion of this old document here. It says coffea at the bottom. And Carl, this guy, he's the one that put coffee on the classification map himself by describing Arabica, our favorite. So I thought that that was a cool bit of botanical trivia for you guys. Um, as I said, there are over 120 species of coffee. And just to give you an idea, there are they, some of them you could hardly recognize as being related to the coffee that we know and love all the time. Um, these are some crazy examples of what different coffee species can look like. But they're all um, within the Caffea genus because they share certain traits, certain similarities. And we can measure that in their genomes, and we can also see that by looking at them. So you can see those flowers. They look familiar. They're not too crazy. Um, but there are also some cherries that look really weird here. Yeah. Okay, so the definition technically of, of a species is organisms that can breed and re reproduce viably together. Um, so technically, uh, your plants are a little bit less uh, extreme about this than animals, I'd say. But you... Uh, as you probably know that two different species are not supposed to mate and create an, a viable offspring. And what's very interesting is that the formation of Arabica actually was this kind of a plant accident that happened when two different species, somehow the biology sort of made a mistake and came together, um, which was conifera and eugenoides, these other two species that are listed here, and, you know, conifera is the robusta, and then eugenoides is another wild coffee species that existed in Central East Africa, and in a very, very lucky event um, where biology made a mistake, conifera and eugenoides had a successful cross, they bred together, and Arabica was created. And it's really interesting that um, people study this now genetically, and there's a theory that this mistake happened literally one time, and that one time created Arabica. So we're very lucky. <laughs> All right, cultivar. I like to use the term cultivar to describe variants among the Arabica species, because the definition is simply cultivated variants of a species originating through human influence. And they are often referred to only as distinct groups of plants that have stable characteristics. So I'm going to go into a lot of what's a lot more 
we're going to talk about this. But human influence, right? Coffee has had tons of human influence. So it's hard for me uh, as a scientist and a botanist to really call the Arabica plants anything other than cultivars, even though uh, cultivar itself, plant breeders who get very specific about these things, they like to use cultivar only if that plant is stable, which means you can plant the seed and then you can let that plant have more seeds and plant those seeds again and again and again, and it will be the exact same plant. Now, those of you who are geeky about this, which maybe some of you are if you're here, might know already that that's not how Arabica works. Usually coffee plants are not that predictable. So we'll get to that. So what's this term variety, though? I mean, we talk about coffee varieties a lot. I think I even put it in the title of this lecture. What is that? Um, a variety actually has a definition uh, scientifically in botany that is that is underneath a species. Yes, it's a measurable variant of a species, but also it has a legal definition, and that's why it says to a plant breeder. A plant breeder knows the legal definition of variety because varieties of plants can be registered legally and protected by, um, registered by the breeder or the institution where those breeders were, and they can be protected like intellectual property. A cultivar to someone like me, as I just explained, is a cultivated variant of a species, but also a plant breeder has a more strict definition of this, and they want it to be a stable plant, which means that the, the genetics and the, the traits, like what the plant looks like and what the plant does, is supposed to be about the same if you plant the seeds, and then the seeds, and then the seeds, etc. But basically, since coffee doesn't really fit into any of these. Just use whatever you want. It's fine. <laughs> okay, hybrids. I already kind of I already kind of touched on this um, when I was talking about the cross between the species, but interbreeding of species or races or very very different genetic organisms are referred to as hybrids. And again, there are there's a of scale of how strict you can be about this definition, right? So some scientists would only consider a successful cross between two absolutely different species, which isn't really supposed to happen, but can, hence the mule is a cross between species, um, but a mule isn't a viable offspring, right? That's why it doesn't really work. So and then a lot of us just use the term loosely to describe if there's a cross between two really different things, um, even if they're the same species, but they've been removed from each other for a long time. Right. And what's this hybrid vigor thing? Um, hybrid vigor is a term that's used probably mostly in plant breeding. When there's a cross between two very different things, what tends to happen is that the good genes get through. So I'm going to talk about genetic diversity and what that means, and we'll get back to this. The F1 hybrid, the F1 stands for first filial, and it literally just means the first generation of the offspring that came from these two parents, like this example here with the flowers. Um, but in the coffee industry, we hear this term, and I want to explain that it kind of means something a little bit specific to us. And F1 hybrids are a term that's being used right now in the coffee industry and in, in 
breeding new coffee varieties in order to describe a specific kind of cross between, let's say, a very known, stable line of coffee that we might call cultivar, like some kind of a a bread line that came out of an institution in Central America or something like this, right? With something very different, which is a wild type or an Ethiopian coffee line. So those two things are very different because of reasons that I will elucidate in a moment. But basically, those are two very different Arabica individuals that are being crossed together. And they're doing this to maximize hybrid vigor. And they're doing this to maximize genetic diversity. And in our industry, if you hear that there's an F1 hybrid being planted somewhere, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about some kind of like a wild-ish coffee. Maybe it's an Ethiopian line. Maybe it came from a collection of saved coffee trees somewhere with something that we know a lot about, Um, something that maybe has some resistance to disease, uh, and those things cross together, hopefully come up with something great. Right. Now... Wild-ish coffee, I'll say ish, is can, can be referred to as a land race or a traditional or a wild variety. And again, with the definitions, it's like, just use whatever works for you. But <laughs> um, it's, I, I don't say wild coffee because I don't know if there is any wild coffee left in this world, you know? Uh, coffee has been touched by humans for such, such a long time. Even if you go into the forests of Ethiopia, uh, it's hard to find any such thing as a coffee that hasn't been influenced by humans because we've been interacting with coffee for a very long time. And any kind of selection, or, you know, someone went into the forest in Ethiopia, found that wild coffee, uh, they brought it, they brought some seeds or they brought a plant, like, into their back garden to grow it. That's a selection, right? Someone is choosing a plant, taking it out of the wild, planting it somewhere else. So, anyway, wild variety, land race, whatever you want to call it, it's sort of a largely natural plant still, but it has had human influence. Right. Different than wild plants, just growing in the forest. And often with these Ethiopian coffees that we hear about uh, or that you can buy from certain regions, um, that's that kind of coffee. Uh, Like some of these names here, there are a lot of different regions in Ethiopia that have semi-forest coffee or semi-wild coffee, these traditional varieties. All right, heirloom. What is that? Heirloom vegetables and and varieties typically refer to some kind of an old line that was established at some point, and then it fell out of favor for whatever reason. Maybe maybe it's because people didn't like the flavor anymore, or maybe it was just forgotten. And then someone found it again, or someone decided that it was the next big thing, and they brought it back. So that's sort of the – there's no real definition of this, again – but that's sort of the idea behind the heirloom concept. So it's not exactly the same thing as that land race or wild type organism. It's not the same as like a wild or semi-forest or forest coffee from Ethiopia. But can anyone think of an example of a coffee that actually fits that definition of heirloom? 
What was that? Geisha. Yeah, exactly. Geisha. So Geisha was some kind of a line of coffee that was selected, right, because someone chose it from the forest in this Geisha region of Ethiopia and collected it and took it out, right? And it made its way uh, to Central America where it was planted for a long time before somebody tried it and thought it was amazing, right? So it was kind of forgotten for a while and then someone found it and now we all love it. So I think that kind of meets the definition of heirloom. Yeah. All right, that's all the crazy definitions for now. Any questions? Wow. All right. So genetics. I know you guys wanted to get into this. So just a little reminder about plant cells and genes and how things work. Um, let's see. That blue picture is actually the tip of a root of a plant that's under that's stained under a microscope. And then uh, so each one of those little dots, basically, it's hard to see from where you are, but are a cell. Those are cells. And then in the, the green slide is another slide that shows a different depiction of plant cells, and they're green because they have the, the chloroform, if you remember your high school biology class. And then, finally, we have the cell, again, in this, in this um, diagram that shows how DNA is coupled into chromosomes inside the nucleus of the cell. So the nucleus of the cell is the part in the middle. Right, that's where all the action is, and that's where all the DNA is. And chromosomes, you probably you hear about chromosomes in humans, but that's how DNA is organized in life. And the chromosomes are made up of DNA. And the DNA is all like crushed in there, as you can see. And this diagram kind of unpacks, it kind of stretches out the DNA. And finally, at the end, you can see the little helix that looks more familiar to you guys probably that um, has the different proteins, has the different base pairs. Um, so don't worry, I'm not going to go too far into this. But if you remember, those base pairs are basically they create a code of proteins. And that code is transcribed, and then it's translated, which means it creates the protein, or it's, um, the code is, is uncoded, the translation part. And then there's a protein that is synthesized from the code. And proteins are the building blocks of life, and that's how it works. And all those proteins basically make everything else happen in the cell, and therefore create traits. This is a picture of what that looks like, a little bit bigger, but you can see the helix, right? And there's different base pairs that are coded. And then there's an image, like the number two is of the transcription. And then the translation is the number three, where this thing reads the code. And then there's proteins at the end, number four. We're going to stop there. Okay. <laughs> So traits. Traits are the things that we see and we can measure in any organism. It could be in humans, like hair color or eye color or, I don't know, like the lines on your hand and how they're organized, whatever. But in plants, uh, there are some of these things. And in coffee, we, we know there are different colors of the, the first leaves, you know, the young leaves. There's different fruit colors. We can measure the height the stature of the plant, or we can measure um, 
how far the the distances between the leaves, the nodes, the leaf shape, um, even the kind of rooting system that the plant has, and even phenology, which means the timing of that everything the plant does, um, like when the buds come out, or when the flowers open, or when the fruit sets. Okay. So why is all this stuff important? Well, it's because traits are the expression of genes, and genes determine everything. Now, a plant growing on the side of the hill, if suddenly the climate changes, it can't just decide that it doesn't like it anymore and get up and walk away and find a new home. That is the difference between plants and animals, right? <laughs> well, one of them, anyway. And, and an important one because it means that for plants especially, their genes are kind of like the only toolkit that they have, right? I'm mixing my metaphors all over the place here. But <laughs> if they have a certain toolbox in their DNA, that's all they have to work with ever. You know, if the climate changes on the hill that they're growing on, they still only have the same toolbox. So the genes in the plant are important because they allow that plant to adapt or acclimate to different growing conditions. So genetic diversity is the measurement of the size of the toolbox. If a plant has a very expansive toolbox, then they're, they're going to be in a good position if suddenly there's a drought or suddenly there's a pest outbreak. But if they have a smaller toolbox, they might not have the right adaptation possible within their DNA. So here we go with the toolbox metaphor again. The diversity is like the toolbox, and climate change is one of these things that is putting a pressure on plants which includes all these things. You guys have heard about climate change before. So <laughs> here's another visual way to think about genetic variation. Um, it's, by definition, just a measurement of the amount of genetic differences within a... Usually it's a, a species. And, but, but sometimes we talk about genetic diversity of like a whole hillside, like that nice Costa Rican rainforest that I just showed. Um, you can think about this in terms of uh, what happened with potatoes in Ireland when the potatoes had a blood and there was a, therefore a famine. You can see there's an example, two examples here. One is if there were diverse potatoes and there was a blight that hit, maybe there would be a bigger toolbox and therefore not all of the potatoes would get the blight. But if the potatoes were literally all the same because they were clones of each other, which if you grow potatoes, you know how that works, um, then there would be a famine. <laughs> all right. So how this is measured scientifically is, is not necessarily by measuring the whole genome of an organism, but just pieces of it. And that's what the word markers there is referring to. We measure genetic diversity by a series or a set of markers, like specific places or little segments of the DNA of that organism, but not the whole thing. Because depending on the organism, we might have not even sequenced the genome yet. All right. Again, with the diversity. I know I showed this before, but what's really interesting is these things look a little bit crazy. Like, you'd think that Arabica or 
Coffea was a very diverse uh, genus. And in fact, it is, but the problem is Arabica itself, you may have heard, has a low genetic diversity. So within the species that we love and care about and depend on, um, we have a little bit of an issue right now with genetic diversity, a huge issue with genetic diversity. So again, here's some pictures demonstrating the traits or some traits that we monitor in coffee. Um, there's also the word for, for how the plant looks is called phenotype. And that's the, those are the traits that we can see, right? But there's also the genotype. The genotype is the word to describe what's in the genes, which, in, which is what's in the toolbox. All right. And another, I mean, how this works with the toolbox thing is that if there's a bigger toolbox, a scientist like to say that the plant or the organism has more plasticity in its phenotype. So phenotypic plasticity, right? If it has a big genetic toolbox, that means that if something goes wrong uh, or the plant needs to adapt, uh, it can change how it works, like the physiology, or it can change how it looks physically. Um, so these are two examples of just trees, other trees, not coffee, that demonstrate phenotypic plasticity. You may have seen, like, Let's see, on the right, there's a tree that has plenty of space. Uh, it actually expresses its phenotype, the way it looks, much differently because it has all the space. But also, oh, it can express its growth shape very differently if it doesn't have all that space. So just that's a very simple version of what phenotypic plasticity is. Um, it has some room in its genes to change to adapt or acclimate to its local environment. Same with leaves of a tree that is grown in the shade. If a tree is, or any plant is grown in the shade, usually it still needs the same amount of, or a lot, it needs a lot of energy, so it tries to make bigger leaves because it gets energy through photosynthesis. Photosynthesis happens through the leaves. But if the tree or the plant is grown in the sun, it might not need so much leaf area because the sun is much more strong, so it can grow smaller leaves for the same amount of energy. This is another way to visually look at it. If a plant has zero phenotypic plasticity, that means it can never change what it looks like, how it grows, how it functions in different environments. But if it has a high phenotypic plasticity because it has a big genetic diversity, that means that different genotypes can change the way the plant looks or functions to best acclimate to its local environment or the local problem. All right. Now, a lot of plants, especially in agriculture, have had this issue with genetic diversity because humans select something, they take it out of its wild forest or wherever they found it, they take something and they bring it and they grow it. And usually what that means is they take like one or two plants and they bring it somewhere else and they propagate a whole field of it. And that is cutting down the toolbox because within one species, different individuals have their own genomes, right? It's like all of us in this room. We all have our own genomes, even though we're all the same species. There's a lot of genetic diversity represented in this room. And it's the same if we just took 
me and planted me in a field, then we'd have a lot of pink flowers, but we wouldn't have anything else, right? All right, so that's artificial selection. Um, plants also have this problem with inbreeding, where a lot of plants, including Arabica, can self-fertilize. That's inbreeding. And if you don't cross with another individual, you're losing an opportunity to mix your toolboxes. So you just kind of narrow the pool of, of genes over time. So self-pollination is a form of inbreeding. And this is just another visual way to think of how plant breeding has traditionally worked, which is if it, originally there's something that's wild and it has the whole toolbox. And then um, slowly, slowly, as we get more sophisticated with our agriculture, we have accidentally narrowed down our crop to something that doesn't have a lot of genetic diversity. All right. Questions about genetic diversity? Yes, questions. Was that slide with the, that looked like a plant the roots and flowers, was that the genetic diversity of those crops as we started making more? That one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't really explain this, but this is just for demonstration purposes. Like, these are a bunch of crops that exist, and um, the top of it actually says, sorry, it's hard to read, it's small. A century ago, in 1903, commercial seed houses offered hundreds of varieties, as shown as the sampled 10 crops. And you can see the pictures. There's, like, beets, cabbage, sweet corn, lettuce, melon, pea, radish, squash, etc. And then... On the bottom side of that, the root side of that, it says 80 years later. By 1983, few of these varieties were found in the seed storage laboratory, which basically means that since we didn't know a lot about genetic diversity a century ago, genes at all, in fact, we didn't really care about this toolbox concept. We didn't know about it. So as modern agriculture thought everything was going really well, they narrowed it down by accident. Most of these crops are such, I mean, especially food crops, have had a lot more research than coffee and are actually, they're doing okay these days. I mean, of course, um, at least in preservation, we have a lot more preserved diversity of different food crops than we do of coffee right now because this has been prioritized over the years, especially those crops that are big staples in, in the U.S. have a lot of research on them. you're talking about genomic sequencing um i guess kind of who is doing that and is it just say that or like is it more specific than that is it looking just for markers what's the goal trying to do crosses to create more genetic diversity in coffee hmm okay well i didn't really talk about that at all but i definitely can um Let's see. When, I, when you measure genetic diversity, you don't measure the whole genome. That's where I was talking about this. Um, but, but they use different markers that they know are good places to look, I guess. Now, as far as what's going on in research, in coffee, on coffee, and uh, identifying genes and understanding the whole genome of the species, um, let's see, why is that important? Why does anyone sequence any whole genome of, of any organism? It's because when you have that information, plants have a lot of similarities to each other, right? Um, coffee, even though it's a very unusual and, and great plant, uh, 
all plants have a lot of similarities. In fact, all plants have a lot of the same genes. So if we sequence the whole coffee genome, it means that automatically scientists who do these things can start to say, oh, well, that's the same gene that uh, corn has here, and that's the same gene that uh, sorghum has there, and we know about this gene from cabbage or, you know, whatever it is. Um, They can start to kind of fill it in, and what that means is they can automatically start to fill in what those genes do. And understanding what those genes do help us because it means that we can decide how to breed coffee better. Future varieties of coffee. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. There, there, a couple of years ago, the whole Robusta genome was sequenced, and there was recently um, an announcement that the whole Arabica genome has been sequenced. Um, and that is, let's see, the paper's not out on it yet, but apparently the information has been made available on a platform that scientists use to study these things. So (laughs) this is kind of getting in the weeds, but we're in the beginning of a very, very rapid research phase on coffee genetics, and that's because these genomes have been sequenced. This is a really exciting time because when scientists can go in and, and say, well, that's the gene for that, and that's the gene for that, and that's the gene for that, they can expedite, they can speed up their breeding process because they can breed, they can make crosses in a more informed way if suddenly they can, they can, you know, go to some random coffee field in Guatemala and take a plant and, and go back to the lab and sequence it and compare it. They can compare those genes um, to the whole genome. They can suddenly say, oh, well, this plant this one plant that I took out of the field, it doesn't have the gene that I took out of this other, or this this other plant has uh, that was bred in Brazil. And so they can say, well, maybe this, this one gene that we're looking for has to do with drought tolerance, right? This seems like an important thing for a plant to be tolerant to drought, especially in the world that we live in now. So they can start to say, oh, well, that means if I'm going to breed a new coffee plant, a new line or a new variety, I should find out I should find a plant to breed together that has this gene for drought tolerance. So we can start to learn about things like that, and it'll make it easier to breed better coffee. Yeah. All right. So a note about plant health, right? I'm talking about genes a lot, but if a plant isn't healthy, um, it's, it's going to have a very hard time thriving, And that doesn't just mean in its production of cherry or seed. It means that um, it means that probably the whatever genetic toolbox it has wasn't able to be plastic enough to deal with whatever the problem is, and therefore the plant isn't doing very well. So I'm going to keep using this drought example. If this plant here doesn't have good genes to make it grow more roots when it's dry, then this plant's not going to be healthy. But if you're interested in this topic, I'm not going to really go into it, uh, except for to say a healthy plant is important to seed production, and that's what we care about, right? We care about seed production um, because coffee seeds are coffee beans. And what's important to note about this slide, and this is a little bit of an aside, is... 
that seed development impacts the chemistry of the green bean. And the chemistry of the green bean creates the precursors, what we call the precursors for roasting the coffee. So therefore it affects the taste. Um, and if the plant isn't healthy, it's not going to be able to prioritize seed production. And that's what we care about. All right, so if you're interested in biology, I wrote this huge article on it one time, and it's on the Chronicle website. The old SCAA website still exists. I don't know if you guys know this secret, but um, if you still want, you know, if you want to read Chronicle articles and stuff, you can still do that through the old website, and this article is still up there. It details a lot more about what a plant needs to be healthy. All right, I know you guys actually want me to get into something interesting Sue, so I'm going to talk about what happened. What happened to coffee? Um, you guys might have heard the story of this guy De Clue, who um, where did he? Let's see. He sailed from who's who's read all about coffee recently? He sailed from France um, to Martinique, and the story is that he brought one coffee plant with him on this ship and he had to share his water ration with this coffee plant <laughs> all the way. Um, so that is the definition of a population bottleneck. The population of coffee, um, well, however he got it to France in the first place is another story, but it came from Ethiopia through Yemen, through some other places, to France, and then he took one plant, so the story goes, to Martinique, to the Caribbean and therefore started coffee production in Central America. So <laughs> that's a bottleneck. Um, we have this poster that somehow, even though it looks like a history poster, it's all about science, and I'll show you why. Uh, it's because I accidentally created this poster when I was doing research on the genetic story of coffee, because the genetic history of coffee is a story about how people colonized places and moved coffee all over the world. So all the little uh, places that are circled here on the poster, I know you can't see it probably, but those are places where big constrictions of genetic material happened, right? They're population bottlenecks, where we brought maybe a few plants, we as people, brought <laughs> coffee around the world. And, um, you know, this is an era when people took sailing ships across oceans. So, uh, Therefore, these are all constrictions that happened in the genome of Arabica. This is another way to, to look at what happened to coffee um, as far as representing the genetic diversity. And so this bubble at the top, it says Southwest Ethiopian wild coffee. You can think of this as a representation. The size of the bubbles is a representation of the size of the toolbox of the species Arabica. And so initially... Traders took coffee out of Ethiopia and brought it to Yemen. And we know this also now from a lot more genetic research that's been done by World Coffee Research. It's, it's pretty fascinating. They can trace these things genetically. So one area of Ethiopia, um, the coffee there, was brought to Yemen and cultivated in Yemen, really, for the first time pretty commercially as far as coffee goes. And then um, different people brought it out of Yemen. And one group... Of people brought it to Java, Indonesia, and then the other group of people went to, to the Reunion Island side of things. And those two 
groups of coffee plants basically are now the Typica and Bourbon groups. And genetic diversity is being narrowed each time we moved it around. This is another way to look at it. Uh, this is a PCA graph. It's kind of weird. What it means is that all the dots, all the like symbols on there, if they're close together, it means they're really closely related. If they're farther apart, it means they're not so close or related, similar. Uh, they're not so similar to each other. So all the dots that are circled by this uh, green line are the Ethiopian genetics of, of Ethiopian coffee. And then you can see there's a smaller group to the side in the blue circle there. And those are the genetics that are measured, the genetic diversity that's measured in um, a cultivated group of coffee. And, for example, you can see where they're from, actually. If you look at some of these symbols, uh, it's kind of hard to see. But but uh, there's some Catamores there. There's some Typicas and Bourbons. There's some kind of introgressed lines. But basically, like, that cultivated group, that's, that's pretty much what we're working with, us in this room. And then in Ethiopia, there exists all the rest. Okay. So, as I said, coffee went from Ethiopia to Yemen. So th then there was a big split in the journey. There was the Tipica journey and the Bourbon journey. So Tipica um, went out of Yemen to Indonesia around the 1690s, and then the Dutch brought it to their, their own botanic garden in about 1700. Ah, here's where the France thing comes in, right? <laughs> Amsterdam, um, the Dutch and the French had some kind of nice agreement or there was a gift or something where they handed over an Arabica plant to the French. And, and then um, the French brought this coffee to a couple different places, but the Dutch brought the Typica line to Suriname, and also the French, de Clue, brought coffee to Martinique. So all, those coffees all kind of came from the same place um, and were spread around Central and South America from there. And that's the Typica group. So the Bourbon group um, went to Reunion Island or Bourbon Island and later from there spread to a couple of different unexpected places, such as back to East Africa and also to Brazil. Um, and also eventually to Western Africa. And since then, we've been kind of trading it around. So this is the, this is the visual representation of this, right? The Tipica group went out of Ethiopia to Yemen, over to Java, maybe through India, maybe not. Um, and then uh, the French brought it over to Central America. And it was also brought to Brazil, via India. So this is a, <laughs> these are some different Tipica coffees that you guys know. Um, but all of these are in this greater group of varieties that are Tipica varieties. So if you have a Tipica from Java that you're buying from Java, and you, there's also Tipica that you're buying from Hawaii, those coffees are probably pretty similar. I mean, in, in their genome. So Bourbon, 
this is the other the other way, right? There's the Reunion Island. Sorry, I didn't point this out earlier. If you guys didn't know, it's um, off Madagascar there, Bourbon Island, if you will. And from there, Bourbon made it over to Brazil somehow. <laughs> and then uh, also was brought back to East Africa, to Kenya. So that was the journey of Bourbon. Now, there are some interesting things that have happened that have broken out different coffee lines or different cultivars from those two major groups. And there's a mutation in Tipica called Maragohipe, and it was found in Brazil originally, and you can see it's got huge coffee seeds. <laughs> but has anyone roasted Maragohipe? Yeah, it's kind of nuts. Um, so in Bourbon, the pacas is a mutation um, that resulted in the plant being a dwarf or having a short stature, and it was found originally in El Salvador, and it was later used to be one of the parents to breed Pacamara. Bourbon point two is another mutation that happened that also is um, sort of a dwarf stature, a smaller plant. It, it looks like a tiny little Christmas tree, actually, in its shape, and it, it was actually found on the Reunion Island, and it's called point two, I think, because of the shape of the tree. Um, Katura was another dwarf mutant, and you guys know what I mean by mutations? This is a genetic mutation. It means it's happening spontaneously, like by accident, in the plants as they cross or as they self-pollinate even. Um, it can happen. And then probably some coffee farmer saw that a certain plant looked really different than the others and was like, what's going on here? I want to plant this one. And now we have these coffees. So Keturah is now a pure line, which means it's stable, which means you can uh, plant the seeds again and again and again, and it's going to be about the same. Viasarchi is a dwarf mutant that was found in Costa Rica. Okay, so crosses is a different story. Crosses is some person decided to make a cross, a plant breeder or something, between two individuals. Or crosses can happen by accident, too, um, sort of in the wild, because pollen is around. I suppose. Uh, so Mundo Novu is a tall cultivar, and it was created with a Sumatran Tipica and a red Bourbon cross. And it was developed, so people cho chose to do this cross in Brazil. Pacamara is a Maragahepe and Pacas cross. And it was, um, it's also an intentional cross. And Catuai is a dwarf pure line cultivar. I'm using the word cult. Actually, most of these could probably be called cultivar, even though I note that the Pacamara is less stable. That means um, somehow there's more variation if you plant the seed and then the seed of the seed of the seed. But Catuai is a pure line dwarf cultivar, and it was created by this Mundo Novo and Yellow Katura cross released in Brazil. <coughs> Hybrids. So we've talked about hybrids, what that means already. You guys have probably heard of the Timor hybrid. Now, a Timor hybrid is not just one coffee. In fact, Timor hybrids, there are a bunch of them, but there's about five that have their own individual number that have been used in a lot of breeding projects to breed other coffees. So a Timor hybrid is a Robusta and Arabica cross uh, originating from the island of Timor, hence the name. And the idea was or it, it was a natural cross originally, 
that happened between Arabica and Robusta um, on the Timor Island. But then uh, people recognized it and developed these different lines, these numbers of Timor hybrid. And they they like them because some of the disease, like drought, pest-resistant stuff that's good about Robusta actually is carried over to the hybrid. Um, and so people like to use these Timor hybrids because they often bring some of the genetic toolbox from Robusta that we find useful into an Arabica plant. So Catamor is... Um, a hybrid, and it's using one of these these Timor hybrids and crossed with Katura, which is a Bourbon, and it was bred in the 80s. And again, um, Catamor is some of these good qualities from Robusta are the disease resistance, which we find very helpful. Sarchamor is sort of a group of cultivars. Um, depending on where you are, they could be actually numbered or not, or if people don't know, um, it's possible that we wouldn't know which Sarchamore it was, but it was a cross between a Via Sarchi, which is a Bourbon coffee, and one of these Timor hybrids. All right. This is a visual representation of all those things I just said. <laughs> um, that could be helpful for you if, you if you like to look at diagrams like this. Um, there are two colors of, of on this picture and the yellow orange color, uh, that means that those plants came from this kind of natural mutation and then we, we grabbed it and ran with it. Um, and then everything else is a selection, which means like people selected these or made these crosses on purpose. And you'll notice that there are a lot of coffees in this world that have names that aren't on this picture, right? And um, that's because I chose not to put them on this diagram because in all of my research, I could not find good information about where they came from, what their parents were, or I felt like whatever stories I was reading or whatever information I found wasn't adequate to like really say for sure where they would fit on this diagram, and therefore I left them out. So everything that's on here is pretty solid. Oh, and this, this picture is also uh, on our website and also in the biology handbook. And it's on this page on our website, I think, which is, um, again, it's the old SCAA website, but it still exists. You can still get it. And <laughs> this is a, if you're really into this variety stuff and you want to learn way more about other other coffees that are not on here, you can go to this part of our website called Coffee Plants of the World. It's under resources on the old SCAA website. And Coffee Plants of the World is basically when I did all this research to follow the genetic history of coffee and, and read about genetic diversity and the path that coffee took historically around the world, all of the verifiable, like good information I found on every coffee cultivar variety line out there is in a list here on this part of the website. Yeah. Oh, it's scaa.org is the old website, and I think that still works. Um, but if you Google SCAA, you can also find it real quick, especially if you find the website or Google Coffee Plants of the World, SCAA, or something like that. Um, 
All right. I'm like almost on time. This is amazing. I'm always over time, you guys. So I left a lot of room for questions. If there's something else I didn't cover that you guys are like super bummed that, <laughs> that I missed, feel free to ask about that too. Yeah. Yeah, you. Yeah, do you have a business card or something? Or. Wow. But how do I get it to you is the question. All of you. Okay, yeah, okay, right, right, right. Okay, good idea. If you email me. What's your email? My email is, we changed our email addresses at the SCA, right? So it's Emma, S-E-M-M-A-S, at S-C-A dot C-O-F-F-E-E. You can do that now. Um, or we can, anyway. <laughs> uh, that is my email address. If you email me, I can definitely give you this presentation. Don't mind at all. E-M-M-A-S? Yes. Emma S at SCA dot coffee. I also have business cards. If you guys want to come up and grab one after, if you don't want to write it down right now. Yeah. Questions? Yeah. So the interesting thing is the development of flavor with new uh, genetic, you know, blueprints really. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think the timeline on actual good flavorants entering, mm-hmm. you know, a lab bred coffee plant would be? Yeah, so great and timely question because that F1 hybrid thing I was talking about, these F1 hybrids that are a cross between some kind of like well-known, like like those those coffees that I had on the, the diagram that looked like a subway system, um, that those coffees like crossed with a wild-ish, some kind of Ethiopian variety, those F1 hybrids are already appearing. And... There are some that are being bred specifically in, I want to say, Nicaragua that um, we just tasted at Rico Symposium the other day. And um, one is called Central Americano or Americana, one of those. And it, it it's kind of around Central America a little bit. But um, the thing about the hybrid coffees is that it's a little bit hard to distribute in mass because – they um, they don't have stable seeds, which means you can't you can't just take the seeds of those coffees and give them to your neighbors. It means they have to be developed and replicated with tissue culture, uh, and I'm not going to get into really what that is, except for it takes a lab and it's expensive and it takes time and it's all these things are not in our favor. So, what's really exciting is that one of these new F1 hybrids. We tasted three at the Rico Symposium the other day, and also World Coffee Research had them at their um, meeting yesterday. These, one of them actually is a stable line because of some accidental freak of nature, which, you know, we're very lucky (laughs) in coffee because plants do all these weird things that they're not supposed to do with their genes. And one of them is um, male sterility. If there is a plant that has male sterility, what that means is that it doesn't create pollen. And that means that the cross that happens, or there won't be a cross that happens. There'll just be this, there'll be this seed that 
that is selfed, that is not um, getting in new stuff, basically. And so it's one of these hybrids. This is a long explanation. Sorry. One of these hybrids that came out, um, and I, thank you. I was just thinking of that. It's called Starmaya. It's not really, I mean, out. It's not really out yet, but it will be soon in Central America. One of these is male sterile, and that means that it can, you, people will just be able to share the seeds, sell the seeds. It's going to be easy. We don't need a lab, you know. Um, and they're really excited about the flavor. One of the reasons why these F1 hybrids are really great is because you all know how amazingly diverse genetically Ethiopian coffee is, and that translates to lots of different flavors, as you all know, as coffee people. So bringing in the, the wilder type genetics from this Ethiopian coffee crossed with something that we know more about means that we have possibility for crazy flavors. And they're really uh, enthusiastic about this Starmaya line that's coming out. But this is, um, we're getting better at it. Especially some strong institutions within Central and South America are getting better at, at uh, this kind of breeding because they acknowledge that as an industry we are very we care about flavor and uh, <laughs> they want to provide good tasting new coffees that are also going to be able to deal with some problems like climate change and disease factors. So that's the idea with the F1 hybrids. More. Yes. Yeah. It is. Whew, we're going way deep here. Um, yes. It's because it's the first cross. So F one, right? First filial. It's the first cross. It means usually. The so everyone has a lot of genes that are not you can't see, right, expressed. But there's a lot more in our genome that is available. And the first cross will give certain characteristics, but if you keep going and there's more pollen introduced, that means there's kind of different opportunity for different arrangements. It's like when a, when a family has, like, five kids. The five kids don't look all the same, right? And, but they still have the same parents. And it's, it's because of the same concept. Um, so <laughs> this doesn't really work with the male sterility. You can't get five kids with that. But, uh, <laughs> but that's why the kids look different. And that's why... Um, different generations past the F1 or bringing in different pollen, even if it's from the same parents, can result in different things. But with the, without that pollen there, um, my explanation is going to be lackluster on this end of things, but uh, you don't have that. And so you have less opportunity for all the kids to look way different, and they're going to look mostly similar. Yeah. Yes. I think you mean species. <laughs> no problem. Um, I don't know. I've, I've heard from people that study these things that, yeah, you could roast them, but they taste terrible. <laughs> um, I think I showed one picture that showed like a huge seed. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, that would be challenging to roast for sure. But um, I think there is a sort of consensus within the scientific community that or that people have tasted these coffees. Like a lot of them actually are from Madagascar, like 60 of them or something. And people have tried them and we would have heard about it if there was like some kind of magical other species out there by this point. I'm pretty sure, but I don't want to rule anything out. It could happen, I guess. Yeah. But we are concerned about those other species and preserving them because um, as we learn more about the genomes, right, and the genes that are within them, we may find that there's a trait in one of them that we want to try and pull and cross with Arabica. So that's why we're concerned about all of those other Kafea species and making sure they're available to us to learn about in the future. Right now there's a big problem with germplasm conservation because, I don't know if you guys know this, but coffee seeds, the way that they are physically, are not good for cryopreservation. And that means, um, if you guys heard about this like deep vault in Norway where they store seeds of things, coffee doesn't work in that unfortunately, um, because of some kind of physical chemical stuff going on in the seed, it's not very viable for cryopreservation. That means we have to have what we call gene banks, germ plasm conservation, which means live collections of plants that are uh, planted all over the world. And that means that someone has to take care of those plants or like water those plants and make sure they don't die. And that's expensive. <laughs> yeah. More questions? Yeah, in the back. How many genes do coffee have? Is it diploid or tetraploid? Oh, chromosomes? Yeah. Uh, Arabica has 44 chromosomes. It's allotetraploidy, which means um, it's because, remember I explained how Arabica shouldn't have really even happened because it was this weird cross between two species? Well, in fact, the way that that worked is Okay, so usually if two parents contribute to an offspring, they only half of their genes go into the offspring, right? It's split. But because of the weird way that this accidentally happened in nature, in our lucky screw-up of biology, the, the entire genome of both of those plants were squished together. So that means Robusta only has 22 chromosomes. But Arabica has 44 because it it didn't just get half. It's no problem. We're done here. <laughs> we didn't just get half. Like if it had been a proper cross, it would have just had the new offspring would have also had 22 chromosomes, like 11 from Robust and 11 from Eugenoides. But in fact, they all the chromosomes got mashed together into Arabica and it has 44 chromosomes which is really weird. And, you know, we're, we're lucky, but we're unlucky, too, because it means it's, it's way hard to breed it back with other species that don't have the same number of chromosomes. That's the thing in biology that doesn't work, because when you try to breed two things that have unequal numbers of chromosomes. Yeah. Piggybacking on that. Yeah. If, if the crossing of Eugenoides 
Well, actually, the Timor hybrid was originally um, one of these natural accidents, and then it, and then some people, scientists or plant breeders, noticed it, and then they took it and bred some different lines of it that is used now in a lot of breeding. So, yeah, that that is also an accident that is not very common, but it is common because we have the Timor hybrid, and we have some other Arabustas you might have heard of. That's what that means. Um, that has happened a couple more times, I guess, than the Eugenoides Robusta cross. Yeah. But it's also kind of a lucky thing that happened. Yeah. Although, I mean, we have new genetic techniques that make it easier to force that to happen, but there, it's still not a perfect science. Like, even the best geneticists and plant breeders in the world can't make it happen. They can they can try to make it happen and like probably like one time out of a bunch of times it'll actually happen, but it's not perfect. So that's why that's why the breeding can be challenging and take time too. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, do you know of any genetic modification being pursued in No, there's a question about GMO stuff. Um there is research in transgenics in the in the scientific world, but there's no I mean there is no coffee that exists right now that has been genetically modified that's commercially available or grown anywhere. And I mean the reason why that is is cuz there's no I mean there's anti demand for it if you will. <laughs> you know, uh, in Europe it's not even allowed. So, uh it's it's hard for me to imagine a future where we actually even get that because it's illegal in Europe, and here we don't like it. So <laughs> um, as a scientist, I know that, and you guys know as consumers, that like a lot of foods that have plants in them, like soy products and stuff like that, are genetically modified. Um, and there's a lot of research on these food. It's like what I said about the food crops. It's like Food crops are prioritized in research, right? I mean, we, we find coffee very very valuable and indispensable but it's not a food right like you can't get carbohydrate energy from it (laughs) you get caffeine energy from it um so other industries have used genetic modification in order to solve problems quickly right they like literally take the drought gene from something and they they take it out and they put it into something that needs drought resistance we haven't done that. I don't think we will. But I know that there is some research being – that's what the transgenic word is. That's like when you take a gene from one thing and you take it and you put it in something else. Um, and it can – it saves a lot of time, of course, because otherwise you'd have to breed the plant. And in coffee, that takes years. But we have other new genetic techniques actually in the coffee industry that are really improving the time it takes to make – crosses and make decisions about breeding so i'm i'm positive about that i think that uh we're finally getting to a place where there's a lot of good genetic research being done on coffee as i said about the genome and at the same time these rapid techniques understanding the genetics of of plants and helping with breeding are going to help us to create new coffees a lot quicker than we used to which is about 30 years in, if we didn't have these new genetic techniques and if we didn't 
um, understand the genomes of these organisms. It, you know, it used to take 30 years to make a new coffee variety, and it, it won't anymore. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? Um, you, yeah. Um, let's see. I'm not sure I, I was able to hear it completely, your question, but about grafting, that is about the, just how healthy and, and I say robust, I mean how robust the roots are. Arabica, I like to, I mean it's our favorite, but it's kind of wimpy as far as plants go. So the robuster roots are, um, they do, they're hardier and they do better to resist nematodes, which are these little like bugs that eat at the roots. And when you graft an Arabica on a Robusta, you're not like having any gene exchange. It's simply just getting different physical roots. It's kind of amazing, actually, um, in concept to me. I think it's really cool that, you know, Arabica roots in places where there are a lot of nematodes, um, like the roots can be too wimpy. And so, a farmer can just say, okay, well, I'm just going to chop this plant in half, but I'm going to Frankenstein somebody else's roots onto it, and it's still going to work. Like, it's really cool. Um, tell me if I missed part of the question, though. Oh, I was just asking about, like, sort of a shortcut, because mm. plant breeding is difficult. It's not to be kind of oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, probably if it was easy to breed better roots for Arabica, we would have done that already. So, so probably, yeah, it's a, it's a way to do that without um, either hybridizing or just saving time. Yeah, totally. Uh, you had a question? Sturmaya. Well, uh, I think we were some of the first people like ever in mass to try it the other day. Uh, but it tasted really fruity. Um, yeah, people were really enthusiastic about it. Um, but I also think it was a little bit, like, on the pulpy side. Like, maybe the processing wasn't completely perfect. So it's hard to say what it, you know, like any. Yeah, it reminded me of a Congo. Or oh, yeah. Cool. Well, I think that it'll take time to figure that out. And probably, you know, if you take that plant and you grow it in different places, it might taste different. So um, we'll have to figure that out. But it's worth a try, I think. Yeah. So, so putting booster roots on a rabbit tree, it doesn't change the flavor of the coffee? Ah, uh, well, I didn't quite say that. But <laughs> so I don't know. There's no real scientific justification for it changing the flavor, except plants will produce the healthiest, best seeds possible when the plant is healthy and its best iteration of itself. So if, if an Arabica plant had a lot of nematode problems and it had crappy roots, it's not going to be able to be as healthy because it's not going to get it, uh, nutrients through water absorption, right? So if you improve the roots, you're going to get better nutrient uptake 
of the plant, and therefore probably you have the best case scenario for getting the most healthy seeds. But that that's the only real justification. It's not directly. Yeah. Yeah. It's not directly going to change the flavor. It's going to put that plant into the most advantageous position for creating healthy seeds. But the flavor... I don't know. It depends on where it's grown. It depends on uh, what variety it is, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. More? You. Um, so uh, as far as the, the, as the genetic diversity is getting lesser and lesser, so if you had the completely wild plant that's had all of um, a long, very long time to essentially adjust <coughs> to all of its surroundings and stuff like that, so mm -hmm. what happens? When you take it away from that and introduce it to a different environment, it doesn't have, you can't exactly force the evolution of its toolbox. That's the difference between acclimation and adaptation, which I didn't really cover, but it, um, it still has that big toolbox, right? So if you physically take this wild coffee plant in the forest in Ethiopia and you, you dig it up, and you move it to a different place and, you know, everything's still healthy and et cetera, it will acclimate, but that's not adaptation. So adaptation is a long-term change in an organism because of different pressures, and it, cre it's, it goes through many different generations. Um, acclimation is the ability for an individual to change its phenology, its uh, traits in some way in the immediate term. So it could still acclimate to a new environment. And depending on its genes, yes, if it has a bigger genetic toolbox, it's going to be more likely to be able to acclimate more. That's phenotypic pl plasticity is acclimation. Adaptation is um, more evolutionary time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How long might you predict before we start seeing Somaya or Central Americano as the importers that we work with? Second, have any of those been tough, like scored by peppers? Yeah, I think they have. Um, so Central Americano is already kind of around. I think some importers probably have it, but. It's just a matter of distribution, right? I was explaining how you have to you have to replicate these hybrids by the tissue culture. I mean, not the Stermaya, but the other ones, or this tissue culture thing, and that's just limiting um, in time and expense. But um, I think I don't know the answer to this because it, you know we're talking about different countries, we're talking about different systems, different importers, different. Pressures. It have to be oh, all right. <laughs> I'm a scientist. I'm like, well, <laughs> um, probably like within five years, it'll be definitely those things will be around. Yeah, I think um, coffee producers that are in it and not getting out of it um, are getting more and more smart to the benefits of planting new types of coffees, resistance coffees, um, these F1 hybrids. I think people more and more understanding that um, 
this is a, a, a wave of the future. World Coffee Research is also in development right now of like five different other or more F1 hybrids. And those those are probably more on like the eight to ten year in the future thing time frame. But um, that's a direction that they're focusing also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, that has absolutely been the problem, right? These uh, hybrid coffees are resistant to disease, but they have they've been maybe on par with like a mediocre Arabica, but maybe not, they don't have the same flavor potential as a Bourbon or something that people ask for. This is the potential with the new F1 hybrid realm, is that when you are crossing something with a wild-ish coffee, there's just a lot more opportunity for crazy new flavors, great flavors, um, we we just we don't know yet, um, but I think that at least I think plant breeders are moving in that in a different direction now because they've heard so many times and there've been so many accidents or I mean I say accidents but there've been so many instances where coffees are bred and they're they have good resistance or something but the flavor just isn't that great and we as an industry have really. We've noticed, and we've kind of dinged them for that. So I think that plant breeders are getting better about knowing that that's our priority. Also, too, don't you think that it's going to take, like, growers? I've been working with a farmer in Costa Rica to do some F1 hybrids so that we can roast them and sell them. But uh, at this point, it is it's taking growers that are committing financial suicide to because of the, the tissue culture, just like the cost of renovation? Well, no one's dying. I mean, it's like, it's not like we have to do it. So oh. Well, I mean, you say no one's dying, but when the Roya outbreak happened, like a lot of plants actually died. Right. I mean... Ah. This is a uh, this is getting to be like a supply demand uh, economic. No, no, it's absolutely it's um business decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Um, I don't know if there are any more questions. I'm happy to just like keep going here, but feel free to also leave. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to a talk from the SCA Lectures podcast series. To hear more on topics relevant to the specialty coffee industry, visit www.scanews.coffee and subscribe to this lecture series. Thanks for listening. Hey there. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the SCA podcast. Before you go, we want to tell you about the SCA Specialty Coffee Expo, returning this April 19th through the 22nd. 
Join us at the Washington State Convention Center for the 30th anniversary. That's right, the 30th anniversary of North America's largest coffee trade show. Expo features lectures like the ones we feature on this podcast, courses from the SCA's new coffee skills program, interactive experiences like uppers and downers, the U.S. Coffee Championships, endless opportunities to network and meet interesting people, and so much more. Learn more and register at coffeeexpo.org. That's coffeeexpo.org. Thank you so much for listening.